well, you should open your Bibles. We're going to Acts 12. I, uh, I don't know if you've done much public speaking, but I had prepared everything, and then this morning in the shower, I went, oh my gosh, I put the wrong title on it. So I renamed everything this morning and had to go back online and change stuff and, and fix a few points. But the title of today's message, because my daughter asked me to tell you right away what the title was, she's a note taker and you need to start. So the title of today's message is called A Cultural Christian. We are in Acts 12 and we're actually reading about Herod Agrippa. And the little bit of his appearance in Scripture, uh, this is kind of the whole, the whole bit of Herod Agrippa, the first that we get, and we're going to study and learn some things from him. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive from you? Speak clearly to us and give us the courage and the faith to respond as you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 12, beginning in verse 19. This is one verse overlap from where Pastor Merrick was preaching last week. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put, his royal, put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. <clears throat> Go ahead, get it out. Ooh. Or, yeah. Um, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. All right. What is going on here? Last week, Merrick was uh, talking about the story of Peter getting out of prison. Uh, Herod was new to the throne, new to the area, and he, had, he was getting in with the, the religious leaders. He was... Um, uh, trying to please the people that he was ruling and the powerful people. And he had recently killed James, son of Zebedee. And, and when he saw that that made the Jews happy, he was like, well, let's do some more of that. And he arrested Peter. And Peter was in prison, but God thwarted that plan, set Peter free. And so now um, that's kind of where we picked up in 19. Herod was searching for him. Peter could not be found. And then, of course, the guards who were guarding Peter paid the price that Peter would have paid, and they were executed. 
There's not a whole lot in the Bible on Herod Agrippa. This is Agrippa I. He's one in the line of Herods. Um, but many times in the scripture, it just says Herod, right? Or sometimes it'll use their, their other name, Agrippa. Um, there's, um, what was the guy before him? Uh, Antipas. There we go. Herod the Great was the first Herod. And then after Agrippa I, there's Agrippa II. And so there's, there's a, whole, a whole bunch of Herods. It seems like too much of not a great thing. And, um, but they all, that was, it was more of a family name, a title. So sometimes you just see Herod, and you're like, okay, which Herod are we talking about? So this is Herod Agrippa I. And I kind of dug into, I like a good biography. I like a good biography. I get into the history of somebody, figure out why they were the way they were. What's their backstory? What, why did you make that knucklehead decision? Like, what, what's going on, and, and why, what, what's feeding into this story? What's the backstory? So one of my main uh, sources for this is Josephus. Josephus is the ancient Jewish historian. He tells us quite a bit about Agrippa I and II and, and the others as well. So this guy's story, Herod Agrippa, it kind of reads like one of our modern-day national politicians. Follow, follow me on this. <clears throat> he was born in a royal family. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. He was born about 11 or 10 BC in Caesarea. Herod the Great, as you may know, was a, a paranoid and crazy dude and ended up killing most of his family out of uh, fear that they were trying to take his throne. In that mayhem over the years, <clears throat> Agrippa lost his father his grandmother, and his mother, and numerous uncles and aunts. And these were not to natural causes. These were uh, killed, assassinated by his grandfather. So messed up, messed up family life. He and his siblings alone were spared. I don't know why, but Herod the Great saved this family, or at least this part of the family, and they were sent off to Rome. It was... Uh, Agrippa and his sister and his brother. No parents. They went with an aunt that wasn't killed <laughs> and, and were sent to Rome where they had friends of the family in Rome. Herod the Great was a friend of Caesar, and so there was connections. There was people there in Rome, the capital of the empire. They had really serious connections there, as it turns out. And Agrippa was essentially raised in the imperial court of the emperor Tiberius until his mid-30s, we guess. He lived a life of debauchery and excess, and it was with his friends. Essentially, he was a perpetual rich frat boy. He, just, he, he had everything. There was no concern about money, at least for the first bit. Eventually, he ran up a huge amount of debt, and creditors stopped giving him uh, the things that he was trying to do, but he still loved this life of luxury. Uh, he was best friends with the son of Tiberius, the son of the emperor, and they had a little crew that would run around and cause all kinds of trouble in Rome until um, Tiberius's son, Drusus was his name. He died unexpectedly at the age of 37. It was natural causes as far as anybody could tell, but Tiberius was having a hard time grieving the death of his son, and it was especially hard when he kept seeing the friends of his son in court every day. So he kicked them all out. 
Y'all can just go away. I don't want to see you. I don't want to be reminded about my son. So Agrippa, having been raised from age maybe 15 to now 35, mid-30s, in the court in Rome, now has to go somewhere else. So he goes back to his home country. He goes back to Caesarea. He gets married. He has his first kid. He names him Agrippa. There's a shock. Uh, um, but he's always miserable. He's always longing for the former life that he had. He's always trying to get back into a place of wealth and lavish lifestyle. Uh, that's what he grew up on. That's what he likes. Um, he never really got his head around money and how that works, but um, after bouncing around between a few bad government jobs and charity from rich family, he outspends his favor and his debts chase him out of town. Agrippa goes back to Rome. It's been a couple years now. He goes back to Rome with the intention of ingratiating himself once more with the imperial family. This, I, I tell you, it just, I feel like I was reading a modern biography of somebody in D.C. <clears throat> Pick your name. Yeah. It works. He goes, and, and he, he actually secured funding to go back. Um, a lot, he secured a lot of funding. Uh, like, I don't, he was an incredible fundraiser. He went back to Rome on his political endeavor, and he ingratiates himself into the royal family again, and he actually plays a major role in the Emperor Claudius coming to power. So Tiberius dies, his son um, was dead, and so it was actually his, his nephew, uh, uh, Caligula, which means small military boat, boot, he, he goes into uh, office, and he's the emperor, and, and that guy went crazy so fast that he was assassinated three years and eight months after he got in. Uh, Tiberius was a longtime uh, ruler, and, and so Caligula gets in there and, and just gets whacked because he went nuts. Like, he went legitimately nuts, and he was the one in, um, instituting the cult of emperor worship across the country. He was putting his statue in everybody's temple. He was cutting off the heads of the statues of every god and putting his own head on those statues. Like he, w he went legitimately nuts, and so there was a broad conspiracy with the Senate, with the Praetorian Guard, with everybody. This guy's got to go. He's got to go. He was, in, he was in process of trying to move his capital from Rome to Alexandria because he believed that the people in Egypt would worship him as a living deity. So he had to go. He, uh, that that would have that been the end of the Roman Empire if he had, he had done that. And so they assassinate him. In the process, his uncle um, is Claudius, and he, he has no ambition. He doesn't want to be the emperor, but, but he's... He's there, and he manages to avoid all the assassinations going on, and so the, some of the Praetorian Guard grab him, and they're going to make him the emperor. Herod Agrippa is in town, and he's friends with everybody here, and he puts himself in the right spot at the right time. He becomes the mediator between the Senate and Claudius. The Senate was like, nope, done with emperors. We're going back to Republic uh, and, and representatives and, and, and all that. We're not doing the emperor thing anymore. That was a bad idea. Claudius is outside, and the guard want him to be 
uh, emperor, and so Herod's going back and forth and, and being the mediator, and eventually they secure the throne for Claudius. So this was how he got in. He had great, Agrippa had great uh, political instincts. He could make things happen. He could say the right things. He could manipulate the situations. And his political savvy was the main reason why Claudius became emperor. Well, this, this, is, this is a big you owe me thing in politics land. So now Agrippa is, is uh, in favor and, um, and so as a, as a reward for his help, he gets awarded several of the regions around Judea. It had been split up. It now becomes one. So he gets Galilee. He gets Perea. He gets Samaria. He gets Judea and Idumea. All of them put together as one. It's, the, it's like a big thing. He's, he's uh, the new hot shot, Right? So he comes back to his new kingdom, and he starts right away doing his political thing. Doing, he's just going to do his political thing. He's going to establish the relationships. He's going to make the right people happy. He's going to make Rome happy, and everything's going to go great. So who do you please? You please the people in power. You, you get to the religious leaders, the Jewish religious sect, and they hate the followers of Jesus. So that's do some persecution here. <laughs> let's, uh, let's make life hard on the followers of Jesus because that'll make the people that I want to make happy, happy. So this is done, and, uh, but he's, he doesn't do it because he hates the church, because he hates Jesus or Jesus' followers. He's just doing it for political reasons, and he knows how to do what he wants to do. Nothing matters to him except accruing more wealth, more power, and influence. So this is where he comes into the narrative in Scripture. That's kind of the backstory. That's, that's where he comes from. That's his trauma. That's the stuff that he never got counseling for. All right, And now he's this dysfunctional polit... Anyway. So he's already killed James, son of Zebedee, at this point. That pleased the Jews. Now he's going to do that with Peter. Peter gets out. And after punishing those soldiers unfortunate enough to have been assigned to guard Peter, Agrippa goes down to the coast to spend some time in Caesarea. He loves Caesarea. That's the town of his birth. He's, he's, uh, he finds it comforting. It's familiar. Caesarea was actually built in honor. The whole, whole town, the whole city was built in honor of Caesar. And so it was done in the Greek and the Roman styles. There was the, the big arena, the hippodrome. And so um, other historical documents say that there was games going on here in honor of Caesar. So he's going down for the games, and he's the sponsor. He's the, the benefactor here. And he is, so he's, he's the host of the games. He loves it at Caesarea. Um, but he also had some political things to settle at the time with Tyre and Sidon and, and those things. And and these guys were also master politicians, and they knew how to get what they wanted from the guy who had what they needed. Flattery was not beneath them. They were shrewd politicians, just as Agrippa was. So it sounds as if, it, the way this plays out, Agrippa is, is standing or, or seated on the rostrum, addressing the people uh, 
these, these other politicians had, had made friends with the right guy to get in, so they're in there, they're there, and they stir up the crowd and they start shouting, he's not a man, he's a god. This, it's the voice of a god, not, not of a man. And of course, it, they're not saying that to, to, uh, to actually like, hey, let's start a, start a cult here and, and let's worship this guy. But it's flattery and it's supposed to make him feel good. And, and he didn't, in that moment, he did not deflect the worship. He did not correct his flatterers. So Acts 12.23 says, an angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten with worms, other records of the day, and Josephus says he fell ill two days later and then suffered terribly for five more days prior to dying. Agrippa ruled his brand new kingdom for just over three years and then was taken out. What a story. What a story. Agrippa was a Jew who liked to use the identity of being Jewish when it benefited him. And there was times in Rome where that benefited him. But he did not hold the values of Judaism. He did not value the law of God. He was a cultural Jew sometimes, but did not love or follow Yahweh. And his life vividly illustrates a couple biblical principles for us. The other title that I was thinking about was The Inadvertent Preacher. He didn't mean to preach these things, but his life did, loud and clear. A couple principles that we see here in the life of Agrippa. The first is that you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. What do, what do you mean? How do you see that in the life of Agrippa? You will eat the fruit of the tree that you tend. Paul says in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. Agrippa had spent his entire life in the political realm. And all his eggs were in that basket. And, and then he spent all of his energies trying to get back into the good graces of the people with money. And, and the, to live that life of luxury. To stay in that world. And to be successful at it. He had invested everything. He had sown everything into politics. He sowed to the flesh, as Paul would say it. He sowed to his selfish ambitions, his greed, his appetites for luxury and debauchery. He was good at it. He worked really hard at it. He sowed into the flesh. And, just like Paul says, he reaped corruption. The Greek word that is translated as corruption here also means destruction or to perish, not just to tarnish or, or, or make dirty or become impure. It means destruction. It's a strong word, destruction and perish. 
Agrippa was in most ways a product of his environment. He did what he knew. He did what he learned growing up. I mean, if you grow up in the imperial court, you're going to learn politics. He did what he saw modeled for him his whole life. And in some ways, one could feel a little bit bad for him. All his life, he had been a political animal, manipulating, maneuvering, conniving. That's where he sowed. The last five years of his life, it looked like these efforts were finally paying off. And he was reaping the benefits of being an excellent political operative. He was. And he was, he was gaming the system. It was working. But he also reaped fruit that proved to be his demise. This also was a result of what, how he sowed and where he sowed. The leaders that flattered him were also same, they were politicians in the same game that he was. And they push him across a line that God would no longer tolerate. He ate the fruit of the tree that he cultivated, and it was bitter indeed. The first principle that we see with Agrippa is you will reap what you sow. You don't get to sow something and then reap something over here. I have a garden at home. It's uh, moderately successful this year. Last year was a complete wash. This year, I've got some things that are growing, some things that are growing. But when I plant carrots and radishes and what was the other one, turnips, turnips, then I will get, providing that things grow, carrots, radishes, and turnips. I will not get beets. I will not get, what else could you plant in the ground? Rutabagas. Yeah, I, uh, I will not get cucumbers. I will get those things which I sow. The seeds are very specific, and you learn to recognize them. And, they, and carrot seeds are so small. They're so small. I mean, you can blow them, and they just go everywhere. Um, if I plant spinach and lettuce, I will get spinach and lettuce. I will not get kale. I will get spinach and lettuce. The same, I mean, this is, this is just a physical principle. God created these things, and they replicate after their kind, right? That's the physical principle, but the principle holds true in our lives and in the spiritual realm. You will reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will get the, the results that come from investing in the flesh. You will get mature flesh, Yuck. <laughs> if you sow to the Spirit, if you invest in the Spirit, if you push into a relationship with God, if you seek after Him and, and become like David, a man after God's own heart, not perfect, just following after God, then you will reap the benefits of that relationship, a mature relationship with God. Agrippa ate the fruit of the tree that he cultivated. You will reap what you sow. And he illustrated that very well. The manner in which he died and the manner in which uh, he, he met his demise was a direct result of the seeds that he had sown. Matthew 26, 52 Jesus is talking to Peter. This is in the garden, and Peter has just cut the ear off the servant of the, the high priest, and 
Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its place for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You could, you could say the same thing in politics. If you, if you live by politics, if you invest into politics, then that will be the thing that, that gets you. Now, that doesn't mean don't be involved in politics. That just means where you invest, that's where you will reap. Money is, is also a big part of this picture. Uh, Agrippa never really got, a hang, got, got the hang of uh, how to deal with money. He, he knew how to raise money. He knew how to borrow money. But everywhere he went, I mean, one, one could surmise, if you didn't believe the scriptures, one could surmise that one of his creditors poisoned him at, at this stage of the game. He owed money everywhere, everywhere. And uh, so he had a big kingdom, but he was not great with money. But money is weird, and it's just like power and influence. It acts like a magnifier. You ever see a, uh, a, a rookie in the NFL? Or, or they come to the end of their rookie contract and make their first big contract, right? And how they change. And their work ethic so many times just disappears. And all the bling comes out. And, uh, and you see, money didn't do that to them. Money just magnified what was on the inside. Power does the same thing. Whatever's on the inside, whatever dysfunction is on the inside is going to be made bigger by the scope of your abilities to, to do that. Could also be said of qualities. The qualities, if somebody's a very generous person and come into a lot of money, then it will magnify how they are on the inside. Every time Agrippa got money, <laughs> every time he got resources, it magnified the dysfunctions that were in him. The point of all that is to sow to the Spirit. Don't sow to the flesh, sow to the spirit. We need to spend more of our time, more of our energy on developing our relationship with God. We need to spend our resources on being obedient to him. And that will reap us life. We will get life. The second principle that Agrippa accidentally preaches to the world around him is that it is possible to allow culture to influence your beliefs and behavior, and when that happens, you are on a slippery slope. What do you mean? Agrippa was immersed in a political culture and everything that that entailed. He was Jewish at times that he wanted to be a good Jew. But in the end, and he was Jewish, he was genetically and, and blood-wise, he was a Jew, um, and he could identify that. But in the end, it wasn't that big of a stretch for him to act like a Roman ruler and accept worship as a deity. Where was he coming from? He, he had just been in Rome. He had just lived through the three years <clears throat> and eight months of, of um, Caligula and the... the psychoness, but, but also just the, what became the norm in the culture as the Roman emperors went downhill. They wanted people to worship them. They want, this is what happens when you, get, when you get absolute power. 
right? And so these guys are wanting to be worshipped. It becomes the normal thing. It's what he's surrounded with. So in that moment when they were just kind of flattering him and saying these things about worshipping him, he's a God, not a man, it wasn't that out of place. It wasn't a foreign thing. It wasn't a shock to the system. It was just something fairly normal. But that was the line that he crossed, and God said, no, no, <laughs> that's enough of that. That most recent emperor, Caligula, had, had been, I said earlier, in the campaign to institute Roman cult worship of himself. Uh, he wanted to call himself the new sun god. Well, he did call himself the new sun god. He wanted to move his headquarters to Alexandria. He wanted worship. And this was how the emperors were going. Agrippa was just in that culture. He was affected by that. And so, so it became part of him. And, and how, did he, how did he get to a place as a Jew where those things became more prevalent in his life than the law of God? Why, why did these things not raise any alarms or red flags for him as a Jewish man? Somebody who called himself a Jew, but didn't ever really observe the law. It's really not hard to draw some parallels in today's world on this one. The culture that we find ourselves in today is a rough one. We see, I mean, we were talking about some of the parallels in the political realm and the stories and, and, and the dysfunctions, and you get, I mean, my personal opinion is if you're, if you're going to be a politician at the top, there is a level of dysfunction that is, that is required, that is, that is a, a foregone conclusion that you have to be broken enough to be able to want to do that. The system's broken, and anyways, we're, I'm not going to opine on politics. That is not why I'm up here. The culture around us today is much as it was then. It's extremely humanistic and hedonistic all the way to its core. It's all about living your best life now. It's about pleasure. It's about escaping pain. It's it's about entertaining yourself all the way till the end. We were, uh, yesterday, we went to um, Tahoma National Cemetery um, Memorial Day weekend, and we're, we're trying to make this a, a um, tradition for our family, and, and so just honoring, honoring the fallen. And, and you, you just wander amongst the, the headstones, and they've all got, there's a small collection of symbols and, and that you can choose from to, to have on your headstone. Most of them, there, there's like five or six varieties of crosses. There's a Catholic cross, and, the, and the, um, there's actually one that we saw a couple times was the, um, the Russian Orthodox cross. And that's a, that's a unique cross. I was like, that's a cross, but I don't know. What, so Kelly was gotten her phone out. We're looking stuff up. What does this one mean? What does this one mean? Okay. Um, they found one that was an A, uh, and I actually didn't see this one, but they, they were in another part of the, 
the uh, cemetery, and it said A, and that was an, it marked for atheist. I was like, well, then now that's interesting to put on your headstone. <laughs> you, would, you would put that, instead of just choosing not to put a symbol on there, you put the A on there. Okay, all right. Um, there was another one that caught my attention, uh, and it was, we looked it up, and it was called the Happy Human. And, it, and it's just this little little icon of, of, of I don't know, it, it was called the happy human. Um, and it was really the symbol of humanism. Happy human. Independent of God. Um, it's all about this life right now, the things that I can experience right now. Very prevalent, not so prevalent in that generation that lies now in the National Cemetery. But there was some of it there. Way more prevalent now. I wonder what kind of symbols would end up on some of our headstones. Or those around us. We live in a fallen world, and there's no getting around that. It's broken, there is sin involved, and there will be until Jesus comes back and eradicates it. But we are, in the meantime, called to live in this world while not taking on the nature that it presents us with. We are not to be separate from God or opposed to God as the culture around us is. We are to follow him and to know him. John 17, Jesus is praying, and he's praying out loud in the presence of disciples, and he says, but... I now come to you, the Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is a constant theme for the church because we are called to preach the gospel, which requires you being in the world. If you weren't supposed to be in the world, then as soon as you gave your life to Jesus, you would disappear and go to heaven and Jesus got you where he wants you and that's you know, good for you. Boy, that'd be easy, wouldn't it? Boy, that'd be the way to go. But instead, you have a commission. You have a job to preach the gospel, and you've got to be in the world. You've still got to, you got to be here to preach the gospel so that people can hear that from you. It's most often a relational activity or transaction that brings the gospel to the front. It's, it's the way you, you work with people, the way you are around people. Um, there's a relationship and an engagement where you have to be in the world. You have to be here. You have to be present. You, uh, you've heard that phrase, what is it? Um, don't be so heavenly minded your, your feet aren't on the ground. No earthly good. No earthly good. I, apparently there's more than one bumper sticker, yes. <laughs> Lord bless him. At the very least, we want to avoid being perceived as something opposite of the message of the gospel. 
here, here's the quandary that we find ourselves in in the church when we look at it from a human perspective. We have our job, which is preaching the gospel, and then we deal with the perception of the church and the perception of believers by the culture around us. And so if the culture around us starts saying, well, you're intolerant, well, you're not loving at all. I thought you were preaching the gospel of love. And here, you don't love the people or you're not perceived to love or you don't love the way that I define love. And so we, we fight this thing where we want to be perceived as nice. We want to, to have good relationships with everybody. And, and in our minds, we're thinking, and, and with good relationships, then the gospel can get in easier. So the world wants us to be accepting of a particular lifestyle that is directly opposed to God's word and his plan for humanity. In the context of our culture, we feel pressured to accept it as the norm or face being labeled as non-loving and judgmental. If God is love, should we not then be loving and accepting of everybody and their lifestyles? Philosophy classes in community college right now are a riot. I just, I just want to get a couple good logic-based students in there and just rip it to shreds. It'll, it's amazing. But let me be clear on this. Neither you nor I get to define what love is. And the culture around us does not get to define what love is. Now, their feelings are, are what they are. We don't get to change what God has said and what God has done. Humanity will try and justify its own perversity, but God's standards and his definitions do not change, and love is defined for us. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, or in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is defined as Jesus paying for our sins. Another place that says, While we were still sinners, he did this thereby defining love. 2 John 1.6 says, And this is love, from our end towards God, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. God loves us. He made a way for us to be with Him, and we show love to Him by doing what He says and obeying Him. Love is not accepting whatever comes our way. Love is not deciding that, well, you know, God said this, but you feel this way, so we're going to go ahead and, and go with that. That is not love. And if we decide that we get to redefine love, are we stepping across that line that culture has drug us to, like Agrippa stepped across his line? 
what happened to Agrippa was that he accepted as normal something that was clearly not acceptable to God. I'm going to say that again. Agrippa accepted as normal something that was clearly not acceptable to God. It was never okay with God that a human should call himself God. Right? There's really strict commandments about that. Why? Because God knows our humanity. He knows our nature. He knows the truth about who we are. He knows who he is. And so it's just untrue. So you don't do the untruth. It's not healthy for anybody. God was extremely clear on that. But Agrippa was taken by culture and by what was normal and what was okay. He was taken to that place where he now thought it was okay. He was taken across that line and he never came back from it. It is possible that we as a church, with a capital C, acquiesce enough and to the point of losing the very core of the gospel we claim to carry. It is possible that we can back away far enough from the gospel and from the harder things that God has said that we lose the very core and the saving message of the gospel in trying to be acceptable to the culture around us. So how do you, how do you be in the world? How do you be in the world? How do you be not just a stench in everybody's nostrils? How do you be just not an offensive prick all the time to the people around you saying, this is God's word? And I'm going to smack you with it. You know. <laughs> well, okay, we're trying to be like Jesus. And that's not how Jesus did it, okay? <laughs> but Jesus also never backed down on the truth. Yeah. Never, ever backed down on the truth. And he was shrewd and he was wise and the Holy Spirit was leading him and guiding him and how he ministered to various people in different situations. The Holy Spirit helped him see through tricks and he, he rejected outright the, the negative culture of the religious leaders of the day. Who did he, he stirred up some stuff. But it wasn't with the Gentiles and the world around him. The solution then to be in the world and not of it is to be intimately acquainted with God's word. The solution is to know him, to know who he is and what he is like. Because that's truth. We pursue Jesus, and through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we become more like Jesus as his disciples. If we know who he is and what he is like, and we use that as our standard of what is right and true and righteous, which is what he says he is, and if we can not let the world around us tell us what is right and wrong, and what truth is, and what love is, that's how we be in the world and not of it. We continually use the plumb line of the word of God because Jesus is the only man who never changes. Humans change. You change, I change. I feel differently on different days. 
Uh, I would like to say I'm more rock solid than that, but I definitely have emotions just like you do. And, and sometimes my feelings don't line up with the word of God. The word never changes. Jesus never changes. It's on our, it's on our wall. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is our bedrock. This is our plumb line. And this is how we live in this world and not take on the nature and the culture of this world. I do not want to lose the power of the gospel because I have given in to what is normal in culture around me. God doesn't morph. He doesn't change with the feelings and fads of humankind. I went a little bit longer on that one, but that was the second principle that Agrippa lived out and showed us. Allowing the culture to influence your beliefs and your behavior is an extremely slippery slope. So, so to the Spirit. So to the Spirit. And keep the Word of God as your standard. You will reap what you sow. God is not mocked. It's the way it is. And we are called, we have, we have a commission, we have a job, and each of us is crucial to that. Please don't ever tell me, well, you're the pastor. My job, and I tell you this frequently, my job is to equip you to help you preach the gospel. We will reap what we sow. And so, so to the Spirit, not the flesh. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is so clear on so many things. And it seems the longer we live, that, that we lose sight of the black and white. And I know I've said it so many times, the longer I live, the less black and white things are. There's always, there's always other factors. There's always uh, considerations. And even as we look at the story of Agrippa and understanding who he was and where he came from, it changes the way we think about him. He wasn't just some evil dude. But Lord, you have given us truth. And you have showed us what is right and what is wrong. Lord, would you give us humility to be able to accept your standard. The culture around us decides that, that everybody gets to decide their own truth. And they, they want to redefine Love and, and if we're not careful, Lord, we get drugged in that direction. And we allow for way too much variance on truth. Give us humility to take your word as truth. Give us courage and strength to walk out in this world the life that you have called us to live while not being contaminated and tainted and destroyed by the culture around us. 
Lord, as you, as you examine our hearts, as we open ourselves to you, you, you see the areas where we have accepted the norms of the culture around us. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us gently and correct us and, and prune things off and pull things away that ought not be there? Would you help us renew our mind back to your standard of truth? And help us walk it out in humility. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. As you go into the rest of your Memorial Day weekend, may you be full of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. May your ears be quick to hear his voice, reminding you of Jesus' words and leading you into righteousness. Amen.